This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. It's about 90 degrees or 29 Celsius outside my door in the early Canadian spring. Crazy weather. The same superheat that set northern Alberta on fire. We'll talk about the climate connection and ask the question, can the tar sands burn? That's later in this program. First, though it seems less exciting, we're going to begin a series about the most important scientific paper of this new century. Dr. James Hansen led a team of international scientists who completely revised the science of climate change. Seas rising much faster, superstorms in the coming decades, doubling and redoubling a polar ice melt. It's a climate thriller, and we all get to live in this new disturbed world. I'm Alex. Welcome to Radio EcoShock. The scientist who warned the U.S. Congress about dangerous climate change in 1988 is back. Dr. James Hansen, who recently retired as the head of NASA's Goddard Institute, says we're going to be hit much sooner and harder than we've been told, even by mainstream science. Hansen says the 2 degrees centigrade upper limit to our warming, as agreed at the Paris Climate Summit, is just not unsafe. It's very plainly dangerous for humans and all life as we know it. James Hansen and more than a dozen other world scientists published a monumental 66-page scientific report in March. The title is Ice Melt, Sea Level Rise, and Superstorms, Evidence from Paleoclimate Data, Climate Modeling, and Modern Observations that 2 degrees C global warming could be dangerous. The public has hardly heard about the news, and there's a lot to hear. I've called up a regular Radio EcoShock correspondent to help us sort out what this new Hansen paper actually says. Paul Beckwith teaches climate science at the University of Ottawa. He has two master's degrees, and he's developing his Ph.D. thesis on abrupt climate change. Paul, welcome back to Radio EcoShock. Hello, Alex. It's always a pleasure talking with you. I appreciate you sharing your expertise so widely. It really, really helps. So James Hansen, perhaps the world's foremost climate scientist, leads this new and shocking interpretation of recent science, and the political and public reaction is crickets, basically. Why is it taking so long for people to get this? Yeah, I mean, that's the question. I I think people um, just, they don't want to hear this. It's very dire, dire news, and they just don't want to hear it. I mean, Hansen's talking about you know, main things that he expects will happen this century with the two degrees Celsius rise over pre-industrial, which is about another degree. You know, he talks about a lot of different things, but he doesn't talk about methane and he doesn't talk about jet stream waviness. I mean, what he does say is, I think there's four or five key points that he says will happen this century. And we're starting to see signs of this already. One is cooling of the southern oceans on the surface. And this cooling would would reduce, it would slow the Southern Ocean overturning circulation. And so you have this layer of meltwater on the surface, and the warmer water deeper down would then undercut the ice shelves in Antarctica, for example. And the ice shelves are grounded on retrogressive bedrock. So in other words, as you go deeper inland, the water gets deeper. So they're they're very unstable and they act as corks to the main ice sheets on Antarctica. So if the ice shelves start breaking off in large quantities, then it's like taking a cork from a champagne bottle. The ice sheets 
that are on land that have all this water, which will rapidly raise sea levels and will come off quickly. He also talks about the North Atlantic, the slowing of the AMOC, the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, and even a shutdown this century, and this would cause a great cooling of the North Atlantic. So what this would do is this, this separation of cold and warm water in the oceans would cause very enormous and powerful storms because the temperature gradient, uh, very sharp temperature gradients between the cold and the warm water adjacent to each other cause large pressure gradients, which then cause high winds, and the jet streams pull across there, and you get these massive uh, storms, the likes of which we have not seen. And of course, you also get um, you know exponential growth of sea level as opposed to slow linear growth. So we're talking about multimeter sea level rise in, in time frames of decades as opposed to centuries. Right. Some of this, he's saying, could start in 2030s, 2040s, and that's pretty unusual uh, when people were generally talking about the year 2100 and beyond. Yes, so um, he did many simulation models of what would happen if you inject large amounts of fresh water in the North Atlantic uh, from Greenland. And this is also being stimulated because we're actually seeing, uh, we have this cold pool of water south of Greenland, which has been a persistent feature just in the last several years. So what basically happens is the excessive melt of Greenland contributes fresh water to the surface, which then goes into this cold pool. Also, you get a either a deflection of the Gulf Stream that cuts across, or the Gulf Stream has is forced to go underneath the cold water on the surface, and it does pop up occasionally in different places. Yeah, you get these large temperature extremes, and then this can can give rise to very strong storms. And also because the jet streams are very wavy, we're often getting ridges or blocking highs over Greenland, so extremely large temperatures over Greenland, and and uh, that will greatly increase melt rates of ice on Greenland, which again raises up sea levels. So if you look at the melt rates from Greenland and Antarctica and look at how often the rates double, we have a doubling period from over the last 20 years or so, somewhere between five and eight years. Now, Hansen models doubling periods of 10 years, 20 years, and 40 years, and says that we're heading towards the much lower range of that, so the 10 years. So even with a 10-year doubling time, we're talking about multi, multi-meter sea level rise in a matter of, you know, number of decades as opposed to, you know, forget 2100, which everybody talks about. In fact, if the doubling rate continues on Greenland and Antarctica, anybody can just calculate that we, we would have a sea level rise of something like seven meters by 2070. In fact, I did a video on this um, just a few years ago. You can just Google that name, can sea level rise seven meters by 2070. I mean, Hansen's highest number is about five meters by 2100, you know, a couple meters possibly, you know, in the next 30 years or so, given this new research that, he's, that um, has just been published. Well, my God, I mean, if we had two meters in the next 20 to 30 years, you're talking about Shanghai, New York, Miami disappears, uh, major changes to the earth. Yes, I mean, it will basically change the, the face of the earth. And I mean, look at look at today's rates of sea level rise, you know, over the last decade, compare them to the previous decade. We know how quickly sea level has risen in the past. I mean, it's risen, you know, it's, it has risen five meters in, in 100 years or less in, in the past, in the paleo records. 
Um, you can look at the you know rates of rise now. You can look at we can measure the rates of um, ice melt using the Grace Anomaly satellites to look at ice melt from Greenland and Antarctica. Also, the ocean temperatures are rising a lot, and and we know that when uh, things are higher temperatures, they expand. So the ocean, the water is taking up more space. Basin size hasn't changed. So this is one of the major sources of sea level rise present day. Uh, you know, Greenland and Antarctica are kicking in big time. We're losing Arctic sea ice. In fact, the sea ice is decreasing. It's weeks ahead of where it was in the previous minimum in 2012, and and uh, which was way ahead of 2007. So it's very possible that we'll have this blue ocean event where we have no sea ice in the Arctic uh, in September. Of course, this will greatly accelerate the temperature rise in the Arctic, both from the uh, latent heat effect, there's no, you know, ice takes a lot of energy to melt. If the ice is not there, that energy will go and raise the temperature of seawater. And uh, also the albedo is, the Arctic is much darker. It's absorbing much more solar energy. So when we lose sea ice and snow cover is also declining exponentially, then the the rates of melt on Greenland will will increase you obviously increase at extremely fast rates, and that combined with the undercutting of the glaciers on in Antarctica, we're in for a wild ride here. And the you know the unfortunate thing is is the public just doesn't isn't aware of these these risks yet. I mean, the government you know we need to declare a climate change emergency. We need you know we have a global climate change emergency underway. And we need this declared by governments, and we need strong action taken on an emergency basis. You know, call it a Marshall Plan when we rebuilt damaged countries in World War II, call it a Manhattan Project, call it a moonshot, an Apollo mission. I mean, we're we're very technologically advanced, but we're doing very, very stupid things now and not recognizing the risks and threats that we face from abrupt climate change. Well, let's get to one of Dr. Hansen's favorite topics, the coming superstorms. He wrote a book, Storms of My Grandchildren, and I understand he's working on a new book now that will be coming out in the next few months. So to understand this, we have to go back about 130,000 years. What happened then that could warn us now about big storms to come? Okay, well, what happened was that the global temperature was about two degrees above pre-industrial. It was about the level that policymakers now are saying is sort of the safe window, if you like. And it's not safe at all. I mean, during the the Eemian 130,000 years ago, when the temperature was about a degree higher than today, actually even less than a degree, so that's two degrees above pre-industrial, the sea levels were six to nine meters higher than they are today, for one thing. So there was, you know, I would guess that probably half of that is from Greenland, half of it is from Antarctica, you know, and there's also a lot more expansion. There's a lot more water vapor in the atmosphere. So for every degree rise in temperature, there's seven, about 7% more water vapor in the atmosphere. So this water vapor fuels much more intense storms. Also, the um, we would definitely have cool regions south of Greenland, cool regions in Antarctica from all that meltwater causing that sea level rise. And those cool regions would lead to extremely high temperature gradients. 
those regions would be much colder and they'd be adjacent to very warm regions. For example, in the north, we'd have the Gulf Stream butting up against the very cold regions or even the Gulf Stream shutting down. And uh, whenever you get this very strong um, temperature gradient, you get a lot of baroclinicity. So basically, you get a very, when you have uh, temperature gradients and you get very, very strong pressure gradients, and then when you have pressure gradients, you get very, very high winds, and that you also have a lot more water vapor in the atmosphere, so that fuels these storms. So these storms then kick up massive waves, and we're talking about 30-meter waves that then carry across the Atlantic and hit down in the Caribbean, hit Bermuda, even further down. And these 30-meter waves then push up massive boulders onto shorelines, and that's what Hansen documents quite a bit in his his paper. So we have storms the likes of which we have, have never seen before in human history on our planet. And as you point out in your YouTube video on the Hansen paper, that ships were never built to face a 100-foot wave, a 30-meter wave, so that could end shipping, say, at least around the Caribbean and, and maybe in other places as well. Yes. Uh, I mean, while those storms were occurring, um, you know, occasionally now we get these rogue waves, which are, you know, 100-foot waves, and we can detect them by satellite. They're not as rare as people think. I mean, at any given time, there might be, you know, half a dozen to a dozen going on. And these are, so these are 30-meter waves. And the rogue waves, they build up from superposition of waves, et cetera. You know, the statistics of wave motion in the oceans. But to have, um, you know, wave trains, 30-meter waves in wave trains, not talking about a single wave, but a group of wave trains. I mean, think of the, think of the, the, the devastation that they would do to shorelines, especially with a sea level rise you know, meters higher than what it is now. I mean, this is, this is what the science tells us we're, we're heading to. I mean, this, this Hansen paper is kind of a landmark. And, you know, he published it sort of online as open source about, you know, last summer. And I did the nine videos on it, trying to dissect it. And, uh, you know, now it's been published officially to the peer review in Atmospheric Chemistry and Physics. It's an open access paper, so anybody can just Google the name of the paper, load the paper up on their um, on their computer, you know, read the uh, you know. There's a lot of technical details in it, but anybody you know, anybody in the public, just read the abstract, read the beginning, the intro, you know, look at some of the figures and read the conclusions, and you can get the gist of the, of the paper. Um, also, Hansen did a 15 minute video recently trying to explain some of the key points of this paper. So, you know, we're, we're, we definitely are facing the consequence of abrupt climate change at the moment. But as bad as the paper is, it doesn't mention methane. I mean, there's five gigatons of methane in the atmosphere right now. There's 100 gigatons on the eastern Siberian Arctic shelf. So even if 1% of that um, was released from the warming seawater, which would occur, you know, if we lose sea ice and snow cover, you know, we have the blue ocean event, the oceans are warming, they're already warming five to seven degrees over these continental shelves. You know, 1% of the methane, you know, on the upper surface comes through, whether it be in clathrates or decomposing permafrost, organic matter in the permafrost, and 1% would, would that would be 10 gigatons, and that would double the, sea, the methane level in the atmosphere. And this is an enormous feedback because on a few-year time scale, you know, the global warming potential is, you know, 150, 200 times that of CO2. So methane starts coming out, then um, the Arctic temperatures will skyrocket. All of these cascading feedbacks kick in, you know, and, you know, we're on a wild roller coaster ride. And, you know, people can follow. I mean, I advocate strongly for, you know, three-legged bar stools type 
type solutions. We need to zero fossil fuel emissions on an emergency basis, but that's not sufficient. That's like one of the metaphorical climate bar stool. We also need to remove CO2 from the atmosphere with CDR methods, and we need to cool the Arctic uh, with solar radiation management methods. And that gives us a fighting chance to restore a you know, climate change restoration of, of, a, of a more stable uh, climate. Well, yes, listeners, I sometimes disagree with Paul about geoengineering, or although I'm starting to lean in his direction as I see this emergency develop. But certainly, Paul's got a really good grip on abrupt climate change, and that's what this paper is about, I think. We've been discussing what might be the biggest scientific paper of this decade, if not this century. It's from a team of scientists led by the famous Dr. James Hansen. The title is Ice Melt, Sea Level Rise, and Superstorms, and I won't read the rest of the title. It's a long one. I'll be doing more interviews and analysis as we go along, and Dr. Hansen has just agreed to do an interview for Radio EcoShock. I know that Paul did a nine-part uh, series of YouTube videos on this paper. I'll put a link to them in my show blog at ecoshock.info. Or, folks, you can just go to YouTube and search for Beckwith and Hansen, and there they are. And also, of course, you've got to go to paulbeckwith.net, his website, where you can get all kinds of goodies and keep up with Paul and his Facebook page. I look at his Facebook page at least every second day, if not every day, to get some more clues about what's going on with the climate. Paul's from the University of Ottawa. He's been really, really helpful to Radio EcoShock. Paul, thank you so much. Well, thank you very much, Alex. Radio EcoShock. Yes, Isabella Velicogna is a co-author on the new paper led by James Hansen. She's also a power researcher in her own right. Educated in Italy, Isabella has a collection of roles with NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, the Ceres Institute at the University of Colorado, and she's an associate professor of Earth System Science at the University of California, Irvine, and that's where we've reached her. On Radio EcoShock, you have heard me talk about a pair of satellites called GRACE. These twins in space can measure changes of gravity in the land, in subsurface waters even, and ice at the poles. Isabella Velaconia can use that information to, as she says, study the mass balance of the Greenland and Antarctic ice sheets and glaciers worldwide in response to climate warming. That's just part of her expertise, including research on the high Arctic water cycle, projections of sea level rise due to climate change, and all this fits perfectly into the new publication that is rocking the science world. It's a long paper with a long title, and the title is Ice Melt, Sea Level Rise, and Superstorms, Evidence from Paleoclimate Data, Climate Modeling, and Modern Observations that 2 Degrees C Warming Could Be Dangerous. Isabella Veliconia, welcome to Radio EcoShock. So what role did you play in this paper? So as you said, I've done a, a lot of work uh, looking at the data of the GRACE satellite. And so in the paper, what I did, I used this data set, this observation. They are very special because they can basically measure the change. We can use them to measure the change in mass of the ice sheets. And so see how much they are losing uh, mass or they are increasing mass, if that was the case. And I've been uh, using this data to calculate the mass losses from the Antarctic and Greenland ice sheets for since 2002, so for a little bit more than, uh, than 10 years, about 13 years. And do we know what the net volume of ice or water lost from the whole of Antarctica was, say, last year? 
So when we look at the ice sheet, we don't really think exactly one year because it's a little bit like when we look at climate, we don't think how it was, you know, last year. We look at an average, what's happening over an average in time. But yes, so what we know, we know that if we look, at, for example, from the data that we use on in the, the mass loss over the past uh, 10 years or so, we can see that there is a, an average mass loss. On average, if I do the average between one year and another during this period, is about 86 gigaton per year. That's a, a gigaton, just to have an idea, is uh, how much water, for example, all LA County, which is a big city, uses in one year to basically do everything, you know, the population needs from, and for like, so for agriculture, for like, uh, you know, people showering, water the lawn, uh, company to use. So it's a lot of water when we talk about 86 on average. But I think that more than looking, you know, how much ice is lost in uh, one year is more important to the things that I think we are very, I don't know if they're excited is uh, the, the war. Scientists get excited about discovering things that, you know, uh, and especially when you study something and it change faster. It's pretty cool from a scientist's point of view is that this mass loss is not the same every year. You know, we find that it's increasing actually every year. So if we have an average of, you know, 86, for example, gigaton per year between, uh, say, in 10 years, this is about the average mass that you have, you know, in the middle of this period. But really, if you look at the more recent year, every year what we find, we find that, for example, in Antarctica, based on this 14 years, about 14 years period that we have from Grace, we get about 70 gigaton additional every year, which is quite a bit. It is a lot, and I'm interested that it's increasing every year because so is the global temperature, as far as we can understand. Now, one thing that was described in the paper is a phenomenon of how cold meltwater seems to be forming a cap that is somehow driving warmer water deeper under the glaciers. Did I understand that correctly, and how does it work? Well, you know, it's not very surprising, I guess, for scientists, because, you know, what's occurring in both polar regions, what happened in the polar region is that the, actually the cold water is on top and uh, the warmer water is at the bottom. And this is, you know, it, it's like normally when you go in the tropic, usually you do have warmer water on the top and colder water on the, on, on the bottom. But this is, you know, this is not the condition around the, the polar region closer to the ice. And for this reason, uh, the warm water is a uh, you can say dangerously, you know, to add a little bit of suspense, closer to the glacier. What really pushes, drives the water, the warmer water, closer to the glacier is the wind pattern, how the wind are changing. So what happened is that the wind, what we are observing is that given how the water has, so we have the colder water on top and warmer water on the bottom, if the wind change, you know, the wind pattern can move the, the colder water and they allow the warmer water to get closer to the glacier. And that's not good because if you have warmer water at that, ice turns out, in, you know, you need a smaller change in the heat of, the, of your uh, water to melt ice at that because the pressure is higher. For a long time, scientists focused on West Antarctica, saying East Antarctica was for now more or less immune to climate change. And then we heard maybe that isn't so, what is happening in East Antarctica? So I think that people have been, and scientists have been more focused on West Antarctica because West Antarctica has a lower elevation and we have more observation of more dynamic change, faster change in some region. 
a lot of the glaciers are, most of the West Antarctica is grounded below sea level, so it's basically is marine grounded, so it's below sea level, so it's more easier to melt, you know, once it starts melting. And East Antarctica has much higher elevation, and there is now a big portion grounded below sea level. But what we are observing, we are observing the, I guess people start to realize, and I think it's a while that we know, that. They, but on the other hand, if you look at East and West Antarctica, East Antarctica is much larger than West Antarctica. And so even if they, you know, proportionally to the entire East Antarctica, there are smaller portions that are grounded below sea level, they can contribute a lot to the total sea level rise. For example, you know, when we think about West Antarctica, we talk about there's a sector that people have been talking a lot about. Uh, there's the Amundsen Sea sector, and it's really losing mass very fast. And if you just really collapse, which, you know, it seems very dramatic, but, you know, collapse in the ice sheet time scale occur in a relatively long time. But this sector, which is one of the larger sectors and more unstable in West Antarctica, can contribute about one meter of sea level. And this is the combination of many glaciers. If we move to East Antarctica, there are some sectors which are grounded below sea level. It means that you know, they are attached to the bedrock. The ice is attached to the bedrock, but is uh, below the, the mean sea level, right? So those are very vulnerable. Once you know, we have warmer water, they get closer to the glaciers. Uh, so one, only one of those glaciers, for example, where we are observing an increase in uh, warm water getting closer to the glacier can contribute. This would be like Totem Glacier, which is in East Antarctica. Can just this one glacier alone would contribute if it collapsed about 3.9 meter, almost 4 meter of global sea level. So, point being that although it's considered overall more stable, East Antarctica, it has some sector that can be very vulnerable to climate-induced changes. And we are observing, you know, that along those regions, we are observing some, you know, warmer water getting closer to the glacier, and this tells us that we should watch out. Moving ahead, in general, we've heard again and again that deglaciation has been underestimated, particularly by the IPCC. Isabella Veliconia, do you agree? Yes, so I agree with this. And uh, there, is a, uh, there is an underestimated when we look at those reports. And the reason why this is uh, the case is that those assessments are based on deterministic model. So their model, they are as good as possible at the present, but there is a general understanding in the community that they are missing some key physical processing. And that doesn't mean that, you know, the scientists don't know what they're doing. It means that we are working toward improving those models, but because of the complexity of the ice sheet, because of the observation that we have in a lot of places not enough, they, by comparing the projection that those models, the result from those models in terms of determining, you know, in terms of estimate of sea level rise from the ice sheets, they are underestimating what we are observing. And so if those models are used for making prediction, is intrinsically we know that they are going to underestimate what is the contribution of the, the glacier to sea level. Where do you think this is all going, say, in our lifetimes, whatever that may mean, and, and say by the end of the century? Are we going to see meaningful change at the poles, or is this something that's going to take 500 years, 1,000 years or longer? Well, I would say we are already seeing meaningful changes at the poles. 
it depends what we see with meaningful, but definitely the ice sheets are already showing us changes, you know, that we can, we can see. I think that what we are expecting you know, for the end of the century, I would say I believe that very likely we're going to get more than one meter of sea level change. And when I say one meter, I talk about, in, you know, generally overall one meter, but I think that is generally understood that the ice sheets are really going to control most of this sea level change. And so they are like the big player in the game. And so point being that I think we're going to get more than one meter based on what we see, you know, we know that we expect uh, changes in the climate and uh, in what we are observing from the ice. It could be, on the other hand, higher than more than one meter. And, uh, you know, there can be as high as two meters in principle. And this is depend on how fast the ice sheet are going to change. And that's not, you know, we don't have a certain answer to that. What we know, we know that things can happen way faster than from the past, from what we know from the past that, that we are observing now. But it's complicated to be able to, to make prediction and have a, a very certain timeline. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith with my guest Isabella Valiconia, an ice and sea level expert from the University of California, Irvine. Isabella, when it comes to polar ice loss, do you think we have reached the stage of unstoppable or irreversible? I would say that for some regions of the ice sheets, we have. Not for all the regions. And what that means, it means that we are locked in on some changes. So there are some changes in sea level, some increase in sea level that I think we, can, we are locked in and they're going to happen based on those regions where we feel that, you know, we are reached the stage of unstoppable. But on the other hand, we don't know how fast we're going to get there. On the other hand, what he says also is that we don't want to get to the unstoppable, uh, irreversible stage for the entire ice sheet. So we should really work hard to try to slow down the process and try to you know, manage it as much as possible. Let's get back to the influential paper you co-authored with James Hansen and a team of other scientists. One impression I got from Dr. Hansen's video abstract of the paper that he published on YouTube is that he finds science is failing to keep up with reality. For example, models don't appear to capture measured changes in the ocean. Isabella, do you think science is broken, or do we need to extend our vision of it? Well, I don't know if I would say that science is failing to keep up with reality. I would say that, you know, science is a big word, but I would just agree that how the results from our scientific work are presented, maybe they are now highlighting all the uncertainty in what we estimated. And so I think that the value, you know, as I was saying before, you know, we have those estimates based on models, but the model has weaknesses, and we know that there are those weaknesses, and we know that, you know, those uncertainties, you know, are also difficult to quantify. And from observation, on the other hand, we know that, that things are happening way faster. So I guess the point is that I would not say the science is broken. I would say that maybe it would be scientists are not doing the best job in presenting what are the uncertainty uh, and the message that comes across is a message that seems contradictory, while it's not. So how important do you think this new Hansen-led paper is compared to some of the other science so far this century? Is this a big one or just another paper? So what I see is really the important message of this paper, and again, it's one paper. What it tells us is that two-degree increase in temperature is not a safe spot. 
And we know that after Paris, you know, there's been an agreement. Let's try to keep temperature to less than one degree, 1.5, and even 1.5. Actually, from what we know, is not necessarily a safe a safe limit. And I think that that's the big message that came across from the paper. And this is based on in the paper Jim did together with all the other authors, he did an incredible work in trying to put in together a lot of scientists and analyze different aspects of modeling and trying to highlight the uncertainty associated with that and looking at the observation and trying to highlight what is this are bringing up as a difference. And I think the, the big message out of the, of the paper is that mostly because of the, the megastorm that could occur, uh, the sea level rise to degree is really an unsafe in unsafe limit, you know, respect increase in temporary respect to the pre-industrial area. And so we really don't want to just feel safe there. We have to just kind of be prepared and try to see what we can do in a positive way, not, not necessarily in a dramatic way. You know, it's just things are going to happen. We are locked in changes. There's a lot of inertia in climate variability in how the ice sheets respond to climate. So if we are locked in changes, you know, in what's going to happen for probably the next 100 years, probably more, we want to start to just uh, make, uh, you know, as much effort as we can to slow down the process. You talk about in a positive way, but do you worry about the future? Uh, I do. I think that we, we should, but I don't try to worry. I think that one of the main problems sometimes is people, I don't want people to say, oh my God, what's going to happen? I worry in the sense that, you know, I know that we are set from, from science, you know, when you said, oh, is the science broken? I think that from observation and science, we know that from the past, we know that the ice sheets, one of the big results of the IPCC was that we know that during the last interglacial maximum, when the temperature was about 1.5 to 2.5 degree higher than what is now, uh, which is where we are heading at the end of the century, the sea level was uh, five to nine meters higher than at present, and most of this uh, sea level increase was due to was coming from the ice sheet. So my point is uh, more like we have to, we should be worried, you know, a little bit worried. As things don't happen, you know, from today to tomorrow in climate, to some extent we have uh, some uh, freedom to adapt and to try to mitigate those changes and get ready. So I am worried if we are not starting to understand that we have to act and do something to slow down and to just try to prevent bigger changes. Is there anything that I've missed that you would like to leave with our listeners? I think one thing that sometimes I'm not sure the listeners have clear is that scientists don't really have an agenda when they look at those things. You know, we are having, if you want to try to understand how the earth works, and what are, you know, the processes that govern those changes and how they're changing under different forcing, under different climate scenarios. So I don't think that as scientists, we have a secret agenda, you know, for why we're saying what's happening, you know, what's going to happen. To some extent, you know, it's almost more fun for us to have this very complicated problem to solve and to understand. And the fact that we don't have a model that we can push the button and tell us what's going to happen. So we are trying when we just communicate with the public or we just try to, to just say, oh, we have new funding. It's not necessarily because, you know, we, we wanted to create a panic or we want to just be spectacular or we have any other second mean. We're just trying to communicate, look, we are improving our understanding of what is happening and what we are seeing tells us that we should really watch out and be careful 
maybe not necessarily for us, you know, me, you, or my, you know, for the generation of my kids and on the kids of my kids. I think we have a responsibility for that and for our planet. From the University of California, Irvine, we've been speaking with Isabella Valaconia. She's an associate professor of Earth System Science who also works with NASA and the Ceres Institute in Colorado. As a polar ice melt and sea level specialist, Isabella is a co-author of the new paper on ice melt, sea level rise, and superstorms. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Thank you to you. I'm Alex Smith reporting for Radio EcoShock. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. With me again is Paul Beckwith, our regular EcoShock correspondent. He's from the University of Ottawa, a climate scientist, teaches climate science there. And we've both been shocked by a sudden event in Canada where the major city that houses and feeds and supports the tar sands, as I call them, or the oil sands, as others call them, in Alberta, has had to be totally evacuated due to a major fire just rushing in on the town practically with no notice. Uh, People couldn't even find enough gasoline at the pumps to get out of town. It was one of those emergency situations we all dread. Paul, I put a video up on YouTube saying, let's face it, folks, we can't keep doing this. We can't keep producing energy using the tar sands. It's one of the most polluting forms of energy in the world. And uh, as we both know, the climate is is going to heck in a handbasket. So I've already received my share of abuse. Uh, What do you think, Paul? Well, I think I'll have to um, join you with the video myself so that, you know, some of the abuse can be spread around. I mean, you know... (sighs) People need to understand, as bad as the inferno was in in Fort Mac, um, and I just heard this morning, um, of course, they evacuated 80,000 people last night, and this morning I've heard that there's over 1,600 structures in the city that have burned down, many neighborhoods and so on. And this is a city that was basically, you know, positioned right in the middle of a boreal forest. You know, because of climate change, the jet stream behavior is changing and we're getting these ridges and troughs in the jet stream. We're getting blocking events. We're getting very warm regions um, with no rainfall in some of these these events where there's persistent blocking. For example, over Fort McMurray, the temperature for, you know, early May is 32 degrees Celsius. And this is 22 degrees Celsius over the normal average temperature for this time of year. And in fact, it's 12 degrees Celsius over the previous maximum temperature on these particular days, May 3rd, May 4th. And there's been persistent, there's been lack of rainfall. First of all, the winter was, there wasn't much snow in the winter. There was a very low snowpack. Then we got these very extreme temperatures in early spring. So the the vegetation is all dried out. And we also know that climate change has cut off the low temperatures in winter. So we have pine beetle and we have emerald ash borer and we have all these other things which decrease the resilience and strength of forests. So these these boreal forests are prone to fire and that happened and Fort McMurray happened to be in the way. So I would argue that Fort McMurray is just the latest city to fall in the climate casino. 
the probability of extreme weather events has increased in frequency, severity, and duration. And these weather events are having huge implications on societies, on cities. Last night it was Fort McMurray. I would argue that Canada overnight suddenly has 80,000 climate refugees from Alberta. We've been helping Syrian climate refugees because there was a massive drought 2006-2011 that drove 1.5 million people from rural areas into cities and they lost their livelihoods. And we've been, Canada's been taking lots of Syrian refugees. Well, we have 80,000 refugees from Alberta as of last night. Well, you know, we had massive fires around my home last summer. We had fire evacuees even staying in, in our house here. And I've seen what fires can do to people when their homes are burned, when their livelihoods are burned. And psychically, it's very difficult for people. There was a nine-year-old kid wouldn't get out of his pickup truck. He, he just felt like he had to be able to get away at any time, even though he was out of the fire zone. So I really, really feel for the people of Fort McMurray. Uh, I'm not trying to be harsh when I say this, but the fact is we should have sh shut down the tar sands a long time ago. It's helping to ruin the climate for all of our kids. We all have to fear the future now, and that's what it's boiling down to. So I'm saying let's take this as an opportunity to rethink these tar sands, get Alberta going into alternative energy. They've already got good wind power going there. They could be building wind machines. They've got to do whatever they can rather than put out more of this tar sands oil. It's too dangerous. Yes, it will be a big mistake um, to just completely rebuild that area and continue with tar sands extraction. As you say, the wind power is expanding in leaps and bounds in Alberta. You know, solar power, of course, is, is massive, but they also have an enormous geothermal um, energy potential in Alberta. And there's lots of holes in the ground that have just been plugged up at the surface, and these could be used, these could be retrofitted for geothermal power systems, and, and that could power lots of the provincial economy, it could generate lots of jobs, the, the skill set of a lot of people in the um, mining industries, extraction industries, could be transferred directly to developing an enormous geothermal industry. And this is, a, this is an area of power which is completely underutilized in Canada. And I'm not sure why. I mean, I guess it's because of the other industries that have, have been more profitable to companies. And, you know, it's tragic. I mean, the fire is tragic, as you say, people losing their homes. I mean, I feel for those people, but I see the bigger picture. And, you know, I've, I've been watching the fires in the Himalayas for the last month, massive fires in India, you know, in the foothills of the Himalayas. And, and they don't have any water to put those fires out. And people are losing their homes there and so on. And yet, you know, there's no noise, there's no news or anything about this in Canada. You know, the people that lost, that had to evacuate all of their homes in Houston from the massive flooding, just a month ago or less, this was another case of extreme climate events. I see the big picture about this, and, you know, as we're all under threat, I mean, we can all be Fort McMurray in terms of disasters falling upon our cities. You know, nobody is immune, no city is immune. And to not even recognize the root cause of, of what is happening with these extreme weather events and these events which take down cities is idiocy. You know, I mean, it's it's just ignoring reality to not, not make those connections between what what is happening. 
And the media is not going to tell the public. I mean, uh, you won't see any stories about the jet stream, the low Arctic sea ice and the impact that has on the weather, the fact that the climate is warming and we're into another record year, that, that it was outrageously hot in Fort McMurray and all around there. You won't hear about it on the news. What you'll hear about is the sadness of some family that lost their family home. And, you know, it's sort of strange because some of those homes uh, were half a million dollars for a shack to be in Fort McMurray just because of the oil industry. And, and then the there were a lot of layoffs there and the real estate crashed and now it's burned, literally. Very strange events there. Yeah, it's also strange because, you know, I just saw a tweet from Elizabeth May and from other people that are saying, you know, send five bucks to help the people in Fort McMurray, you know, send 10 bucks. You know, people have lost their homes. And yes, I mean, people, the communities come together from other regions, from Alberta. You know, Trudeau's gone on and talked about federal aid to Alberta. Nobody, none of these people are saying, okay, these companies that are just north of Fort McMurray that have hired these people make more profit than any other companies in the world just about, not since the oil prices plummeted, but before. And I don't see any call to have these companies financially support all of the people that have been affected, that have lost their town, that have lost their livelihoods. I mean, people, there's calls to the public, you know, across Canada to support financially people that have been hit by the disaster. But what about, where's the calls to have these companies be responsible for you know what what's happening right because that's they're the root cause of the these changes to our the chemistry of our atmosphere well, but that's that's ocean. the deal paul that's the deal the companies make the profits the investors take them back home and then when there's climate induced damage the public is supposed to pay for it Yes, yes. I mean, the system is completely broken. It's not, you know, I don't know. I mean, it seems that the human brain is not capable of understanding the big picture of climate change, you know, and uh, dealing with it, at least up to now. I mean, we're, we haven't, we're not inspiring much confidence that we're going to deal with these problems. Of course, that can change on a dime. You know, if there's a tipping point in human understanding of these threats and you know, behaviors change. And, uh, you know, this is what I'm hopeful will eventually happen. You know, maybe it'll take a completely blue ocean in the Arctic, no sea ice, with these extreme weather events ramping up in order of magnitude or something. And you and I are trying every day, basically, to uh, get this message out. And, and we hope that it will reach some of the people in Fort McMurray as well to rethink your future and uh, look for a greener path for the sake of your kids and your grandkids and, and my kids and my grandkids, we've all got to do this. Paul, is there anything you'd like to add about the Fort McMurray situation as we wrap this up? Um, these events, you know, are becoming more and more frequent and more and more severe and affecting more and more people around the planet. So, you know, I would just encourage everybody on this planet to try to look at these events as part of a big picture you know, as, a, as as part of a big puzzle or something, or, or or of the whole chess game, not just one particular move in the chess game, but the whole chess game, and the whole chess game is the climate system and how it's changing. Yeah, and we're going to have to avoid seeing it as entertainment, as a, a game on the news where you watch the next uh, community burn down or be flooded out or 
have uh, seas crashing over it, and and that makes for excellent television and exciting times to live in. But it's not a good thing. It's not a good path forward. I think we both can agree with that. Uh, we're talking with Paul Beckwith, one of my favorite correspondents with Radio EcoShock. He's at the University of Ottawa. Be sure and visit paulbeckwith.net to find all his videos and his Facebook page. I'll put links to all of that at ecoshot.info. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you very much, Alex. Breaking news, Bloomberg reports smoke from the fire complex reached the tar sands operations of Suncor, just north of Fort McMurray. Already the size of Luxembourg, the fire is expected to double in size in 24 hours. It may burn for months, since only prolonged rain can stop it. The Canadian Bank of Montreal has revised Canada's economic prospects downward as more tar sands production facilities close. Millions of barrels of oil per day have stopped flowing. As a world-class superfire, this will be Canada's most expensive natural disaster, with expected costs over $7 billion U.S. and counting. I said we must avoid seeing the climate crisis as entertainment. The news knows how to show a striking video with music that makes us feel part of great events. They know we will flock to the news coverage and then see their advertising to buy more products that are part of the problem. It's our human nature to be fascinated with catastrophe, and so climate disaster sells. Even greens become glued to extreme weather porn generated by an unstable atmosphere, Who can look away? We are also drawn to something new. Here is a new question for you. Can the tar sands operations burn, and what happens if they do? In his blog, Robert Scribbler writes, Smoke plume analysis indicates that the northern extent of this monstrous fire is just three miles to the south of the nearest tar sands facility. Now the big blotches of tar sands production lands have been mostly deforested, which is part of their massive environmental damage. So there are fewer trees to burn there. But my question is, can the tar sands lands themselves burn? We have gigantic tailings and wastewater ponds which are loaded with various types of flammable petrochemicals. We have storage tanks full of flammable stuff. And along those lines, I heard a television interview with a fire chief who worried that a gas storage plant near the fire could explode. If it did, he said, the blast zone would be 14 kilometers wide, or eight and a half miles. Emergency workers are just terrified it could blow. And this is one of a thousand reasons why the people evacuated from Fort McMurray won't be going home anytime soon. The Canadian magazine Maclean's asks this question. In their article, Could the Oil Sands Catch Fire?, they write, quote, A 2004 article in the U.S. National Fire Protection Association Journal offered a list of the potential fire risks faced by Suncor Energy, one of the oil sands' biggest producers. It included hydrogen spill and pressure fires, storage tank fires, vapor cloud explosions, flammable gas fires, runaway exothermic reactions, and coke and sulfur fires, end quote. The article quotes Chelsea Classen from the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers saying the toxic tailing ponds are not themselves flammable. I'm not so sure. Maybe we'll find out. What about the giant extraction and processing facilities? 
Presumably there are pits the size of cities where the tarry bitumen has been exposed by skimming off up to 75 feet of the soil. If those pits catch fire, is it possible that, like peat fires, they could burn for years? Just consider the amount of carbon this would add to the atmosphere and the lasting smoke which would pour across western Canada for how long? Years? A decade? Is it possible? We don't know. This situation has never happened before. I hope we don't find out. But we might experience a new kind of fire event in Canada, a kind of fire Fukushima. Beyond the strip mining bitumen, the other type of extraction called in situ involves sinking pipes and literally melting the ground below to make the sticky tar more mobile so it can be pumped up to the surface. That requires unbelievable amounts of natural gas, which has often been fracked in northern Alberta and British Columbia. That fracking and the transmission of gas releases very potent methane in amounts that can be measured by airplanes and even satellites. So there's lots of greenhouse gases before the extraction process even begins. Then the gas is burned with more emissions. There must be gigantic gas storage facilities and feeder pipelines all through that area just north of Fort McMurray. We are talking about land the size of smaller European countries. If the fire reaches all that, the explosions and greenhouse emissions would be off the charts, things not seen before on this planet. What if the tar sands operations catch fire and blow? Maybe it won't happen this time. It's a huge risk. Tonight, while walking, I met a local citizen who told me the tar sands are a clean source of fuel because Canada has regulations, while there are no environmental regulations in the Middle Eastern country, he said. He obviously doesn't know the highly polluting energy train required to get sticky bitumen out of the ground, whether you mine it or you melt it. Even then, it isn't oil. It's a kind of pre-oil. That bitumen has to be treated with hydrogen at very high temperatures, blast furnace temperatures, again using tremendous energy with tremendous emissions to get a heavy prequel to oil. Transport that oil prequel using more energy to specialized refineries that can deal with heavy oil which is again a more intensive process with more emissions, and you get products like diesel fuel. That's all there is to it, compared to the light oil that can be easily pumped out of the ground in the Middle East or from the seabed off Norway, and it's more easy to refine. That is why oil from wells requires about one barrel of oil to produce up to 100 barrels of oil, while the tar sands require the equivalent of about one barrel of oil to produce, at best, five barrels of oil. That ratio is so low that if all we had was tar sands oil, civilization as we know it would collapse. There isn't enough return on energy investment to have all the energy left over that we depend on. That is why the tar sands oil is among the dirtiest energy sources from an emissions perspective of any fuel in the world. Even most Canadians don't know this. The people whose paychecks depend directly on the Alberta energy industry don't want to know. In fact, many react with surprising anger when you tell them. And they can say with a straight face that black is white, that tar sands oil is cleaner than oil from Venezuela or Norway. As the American author Upton Sinclair said, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. Here the Fort McMurray tragedy becomes another repetition of classic human error, after every disaster, every politician from local to national promises, 
we will rebuild. That's what they said after Hurricane Sandy or Hurricane Katrina. That's what they always say. They'll even rebuild cities right on the coast where the next hurricane and storm surge will wash over right again. Fort McMurray was already entering a stage of collapse when the fire hit. Rebuilding everything is the bridge to nowhere. Look, I have family who evacuated from Fort McMurray with nothing but their car, their kids, and their dog. The harsh truth is that many, many people in Fort McMurray were one credit card payment away from utter bankruptcy. Tens of thousands of jobs were lost as expensive oil was crushed by cheap Middle Eastern oil and cheap fracking oil. The sad truth is that most Canadians, who used to be great savers, instead became addicted to debt. They built many mansions in the northern wilderness at inflated prices. They bought monster pickup trucks for $70,000 each on eight-year payment schemes. They bought off-road vehicles, boats, clothes, the lot, mostly on credit, because a person with a high school education could make over $100,000 a year. Fort McMurray became a party that could never end. Drug use and drug crime was phenomenal for the size of the city. It was all ripe for a fall, and it fell. Countless evacuees are showing up on the news with absolutely nothing. After ten years or more of working in the gold mine that was the tar sands, they were on the edge of bankruptcy with no savings, and now they are climate evacuees who don't know they're climate evacuees. The heartache is just beginning. The bill to the taxpayer is just beginning. This will take years to sort out, and some people will never recover. The people of Fort McMurray will fade out of the headlines, perhaps pushed out by the next extreme weather event or giant storm we can all watch. But the blow to Alberta and Canada will go on and on. It's come to the point where trees are now a threat to any city. My own home could be next, or yours. There's practically nowhere that cannot burn out of control. Ask people in Australia, California, or the Himalayas, Indonesia, almost anywhere. I'm sure some cities will try to cut down the forest around them, maybe even limit tree planting within city limits. That just releases more carbon, reduces the ability of trees to absorb carbon dioxide, and it won't work anyway. As Paul Beckwith says, we have entered the age of the climate casino. You could be the next climate evacuee. No city is safe from some sort of climate extreme. Nobody is immune. The only solution is to recognize reality and tackle the root of the problem. That means converting away from fossil fuel based in our civilization. That process begins with closing down the worst and most polluting forms of fossil fuels. At the top of that list are two fuels, coal and the tar sands. Coal in Western countries is going bankrupt. It still fuels most of India, China, and much of the developing world. That story is far from over. The tar sands could shut down tomorrow, and the oil glut would still continue. We don't need them. Canada must stop promising to rebuild that deadly infrastructure, stop subsidizing the dirtiest oil, and we must adopt a plan to close down these facilities entirely within five years, if not immediately. That's what it takes, and the alternative is to keep on suffering if we can keep on at all. I'm Alex Smith. This is Radio Ecoshock for the world. Here is the bit of music I wrote for this show. It's called Anti-Cruise. I'll toss it on SoundCloud. You can download it separately if you want.